Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. In the spirit of ANU's motto, which is first to know the nature of things, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and waterways, which were never ceded. We pay our respects to their elders past and present and extend our respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples listening today. I asked the Prime Minister, how good is Australia? Please explain. I'm here to make a public statement. Look, I'm going to uh, shirt from Mr Putin. I am a fighter and not a fighter. I don't think, I know. And I want to thank uh, that fellow down under. Oh, fair shake of the sauce bottle, mate. G'day, Mark Kenny here, and thanks for joining us again on Democracy Sausage, which, as you know, comes each week from the ANU, Australian National University. I'm from the Australian Studies Institute within said university and the School of Politics and International Relations as well, uh, as is the wonderful Dr. Maria Teflaga, political scientist, a senior lecturer in SPEAR, the uh, School of Politics and International Relations. Maria, good to see you again. Hi. Hi, everyone. Now... Just at this point, I wanted to give a shout out uh, just quickly uh, to uh, the students of the Elections and Political Behaviour and Public Opinion uh, Winter Intensive course that was uh, that is being given uh, on campus at the moment. I gave a lecture there yesterday morning on issues associated with uh, particularly media and, and political campaigns and what it's like for journalists in um, election campaigns and the like. But I was just so impressed with the quality of the uh, the discussion that occurred in the in the question time afterwards. You know, I had so many really good questions put to me and uh, it was, um, uh, you know, we were just talking uh, before we came on about um, life on campus and the, you know, the, uh, um, the, the changes that have, you know, unfortunately been uh, inflicted on on many places and, and campuses have been particularly affected by, by the COVID and that's all, you know, coming back now. But it was just great to have, you know, a pretty full lecture theatre and to get uh, get those really great questions. I mean, you're probably well aware of this, Maria, as well in terms of uh, your courses that you're teaching. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I think um, it has been a hard time for universities, but it has been really encouraging to see students come back on campus and it's certainly much better much easier to teach in in person, I find, than than online. Yeah, and it's well, exactly. It's it's just such a richer experience, such a um, a more interactive and and spontaneous experience, I think. And um, thanks to Professor Ian McAllister and Dr. Katrine Beauregard who invited me to that because they've of course been on Democracy Sausage in in their separate capacities, and uh, we'll have to think about ways in which we can engage Absolutely. with them again because great experts. Um, today, though, Maria, Maria, we're going to be talking to the former Liberal Senator, former Attorney General and former High Commissioner to the UK from Australia, now turned Professor of National Security at the ANU, George Brandis. Welcome, George. Hi, how are you? I'm really, really well, thank you, and it's uh, good to talk to you. It's um, um, been quite a while. Of course, I don't think we spoke at all during your time over in the UK. But, no, I um, don't think so. Yeah, it's really, really great to have a chance to talk to you, particularly because 
you have taken up this role also as a columnist with uh, the nine newspapers. Yeah. Uh, and um, can I first congratulate you on those columns because I think um, – well, like, like is, as is the case with all columnists, and I'm one as well, you know, not everyone always agrees with you, and I certainly don't always agree with the, the arguments you put, but I will say this, you put them very well, and you pass that really critical first test, which is you're always interesting. And uh, can I just uh, congratulate you on that? But, Thank you. Um, there's a number of issues that, uh, that you've covered in recent times, things like Ukraine, the Liberal Party, uh, you haven't covered cricket and the Ashes yet. The the, the most recent uh, controversy. No, I, I thought I thought I'd leave that to others. I, <laughs> I actually was watching live when that happened. And, right. uh, for what it's worth, I think what happened in the long room is much more revealing than anything that, that happened on on the pitch. When when that uh, stumping occurred, I didn't even understand what the fuss was about right. because I've never been much of a sportsman. But I remember when I was like Anthony Albanese said when I was playing cricket as a schoolboy. I mean, you know, one of the rules was you don't wander out of your crease and if you're stumped, then that was what happens to you. And I, I was very surprised that that was regarded as unsporting conduct. Yes, well, I mean, yeah, it it was amazing the response to it because absurd. There was, a, but it was interesting. I, I heard Waleed and Scott talking about this on on the the minefield uh, on on RN, uh, a podcast I also enjoy, or a radio program I also enjoy. Um, Scott was not getting it at all because he's basically of American heritage, and, mm. and cricket is not sort of steeped in <laughs> in his mind, and he's not a particularly enthusiastic uh, user of sports metaphors and that kind of thing, as is the case with many of us. Uh, Waleed, on the other hand, was most exercised about it, and there was a lot of interesting discussion about the whole notion of, um, you know, the relationship and the balance between things that are rules and things that are conventions, you know, etiquette and ethics and the what, what Scott called the ethos of the game as distinct from the rules. And I thought it's quite a fascinating frame. You know, and it was pretty obvious in their discussion, Waleed was essentially trying to kind of, you know, metaphorically compare that with 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 politics and uh, you know some of the stories that have been running uh, as well there, so uh, it is it is a fascinating area. Well, isn't particularly it? since you can when you consider that in the second test, um, for an entire session, um, there was bouncer after bouncer, yes. which was designed to intimidate and physically hurt the batsman. Yeah, and that was not regarded as unsporting. Yeah, uh, but to um, uh, get somebody out entirely within the rules because of their inadvertence was I. I'm entirely one hundred percent. I don't even think there are two points of view here. I, I'm one hundred percent on the side of uh, of the Australian that the Australians did the right thing, and the British, particularly the people in the long room at Lords, behaved. Very, very abominably, badly. abominably. And Gideon Haig uh, rather, um, rather nailed them when he described them as puce-faced, dim bulb snobs, <laughs> 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 oh, yelling wow. at yelling at Usman Khawaja, uh, a man of colour, a gentle man of colour, as you know. A but it wasn't spoke. just Usman Khawaja. No, it, it was wasn't. the entire team. It was, but uh, there was an argument that some of them singled him out. I'm not sure why. Perhaps because he engaged I with think, them. I think if you look at the, the vision of it. Um, he engaged and, and and sort of gave some chat back. Yeah, but it would have been it would have been polite. I mean, that's the nature of the man. And mm. um, I don't know. Uh, there there ought to so. have been. And it's the only place where Maria, where when the bats, you know, this is the home of cricket, Lords. Right. This is not just anything. This is the place where the rules, the very rules that were used to ha have this wicket occur, um, 
are, are set by by lords, you know, by the by the MCC, the Marylebone Cricket Club. Well, I'm and definitely... it's the only place where when you get out, you know, the two teams go through this long room, as George was saying, um, where all the members are, all these characters in pinstripe jackets and I'm definitely the Scott Stevens of this conversation. <laughs> but I guess I, I did have two observations which I thought were interesting. Like I, it is interesting that British political actors and commentators do tend to think that Australians are very sort of winner takes all and gung ho mm. compared to them to, the, to themselves, which probably goes to the sort of self image that they they created themselves. And I also just the only thing I did really see about it was you know Rishi Sunak weighing in, and and I just sort of thought, well, you know, that's really you must be desperate if that's that's what it's he sort of desperate. coming to, you know, that yeah you've got well, to weigh in. He's quite the desperate, cricket. but he's also a massive cricket fan and he a is, cricketer himself. Yeah, I mean, when, when, when he left, when he lost the Tory leadership um, uh, during the brief Truss administration and he wasn't appointed to cabinet by her, the first thing he did, he said he was going to do was he was going to try out for his local mm. uh, cricket side in Yorkshire. So, yes. I mean, he's a very passionate yes. cricket person, Richard I, I was listening in the middle of the night, as one does, you know, um, uh, to the cricket app, ABC Cricket app, and listening to it. And at one stage I must have dozed off and I woke up and, and there was this interview going on, long-form interview going on, and I didn't actually know who it was he was talking at first. And he was telling that story and about going back there and he was – it was gently told by someone in the local village, look, um, <laughs> don't assume that you'll automatically be selected yeah, here. This is pretty right. competitive. I mean, yeah. th this is this is someone who is now, you know, Prime Minister of the, of the country and I thought that was uh, just a fascinating Yeah, I don't think ah. you would have had such a cricket nut in 10 Darling Street since John Major. No, that's, that's probably right. But, you know, uh, going to Maria's point um, – Australia does have this reputation. There was Sandpaper Gate. Um, there was the underarm bowling incident. There is that sort of sense of Australia looking at the rules and and you know not looking at the ethos, I suppose. Well, yeah, Although but Sandpaper I think that's a, I think that's blatant. a very poor metaphor because for those who try to use it, because abrasive metaphor we'll call sand it. That. <laughs> Sandpaper Gate was cheating. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, black and white cheating, yeah. disgraceful. Yeah. Um, the um, the Trevor Chapel incident all those years ago, bowling underarm was um, so obviously uh, a a distortion of the rules that mm. it was amounted, in my view, to cheating. Mm. But this incident, this mm. episode, was entirely not only within the rules, but the way I always understood cricket was orthodox. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, now. A lot of people are listening to this thing. Why are they talking about cricket all the time? So let's talk about. Well, I was uh, the sports minister, right? I know this. Stuff. <laughs> well, that's true. I, I, I should have said that. Yeah, that's that's very true. Um, but look, you've written recently about uh, the voice, uh, mm -hmm. and um, you wrote a piece. Uh, I think it's sitting there. Um, seven ways to essentially revive it or rescue it, the, the the yes campaign, and you've called the campaign. Uh, I think it was terrible and tone deaf. Yeah. Um, is that still your view? It is. Uh, in fact, I mean, I was watching Linda Burney's speech to um, the National Press Club last week, and it was almost as if she doubled down on because I, I think I said in the last paragraph of that column, I bet nobody in the Yes campaign takes the blind bit of difference of these ideas, and it was almost as if Linda Burney was determined to do to prove that right to 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 to, uh, to do make all the mistakes again because. I do think that the Yes campaign 
has been uh, patronising. I think it has been there's been a lot of moral bullying and uh, shaming people into into thinking they're doing the right thing if they vote no, and that kind of misses the point. And the point, I the way I would put it, Mark, that's not what I said in the column you refer to, is that unlike elections, referendums are not binary, at least not in the campaign phase, for this reason. In an election, ultimately, people have to choose between Labor and coalition. I mean, through the preference system, they're forced to that choice ultimately. Mm. Um, and that's not to say that there aren't undecided people, but ultimately they decide, well, do we vote for the coalition? Do we vote for Labor? Do we vote for a change of government? Do we vote to return the incumbent government? But in referenda, there are really three groups, or another way of putting the same point would be to say that the undecided group has a different character. So you're always going to have the people who are in favour of the proposition. You're always going to have the people who are uh, opposed uh, to the proposition. But the undecided group is different for two reasons. First of all, because it's almost always a lot bigger in referenda as people become aware of what this is all about. But secondly, there is a large number of people, in my view, in that undecided group who may be inclined to vote yes, but aren't sure. Mm-hmm. And within that, among those, the default choice is to vote no, not because they're necessarily opposed to the yes, the proposition, the yes point of view, but because they're not sure and the default position is the precautionary position of voting no. And that, I think, is the real dynamic of a, of a referendum campaign, and it's those people who are not being addressed. Yeah. Um, you you list a number of ways in which uh, the, the, the campaign can change. You talk about uh, being respectful. Uh, you talk about publishing the uh, an exposure draft of the the voice structure. You say uh, quite pointedly, as a former attorney general, you 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 say quite confidently that an exposure draft would exist. Um, well, I'm sure it would. Or if not an exposure draft, a document that amounts to much the same thing: yeah. drafting instructions or, or whatever. And. But, I mean, but, I, but, but would that be? Would that actually be helpful? I oh, mean, of course it would. But, I mean, and, and I draw upon my experience. You know, I ran the parliamentary tactics, as, you know, for the for the marriage equality hmm. legislation, and and I was a strong advocate for marriage equality. Um, but I was also very mindful of the fact how easy any new and um, controversial proposition is to mess up, and. Quite a, at a quite an early stage, long before it went to the parliament, I said to Malcolm Turnbull, what we should do is we should have an exposure draft so that people will be able to see what this will look like. And it's not as simple as it sounds because marriage is, particularly when you get into areas like the recognition of foreign marriages, for instance, is actually quite a legally complex area. It's not simply do you should gay people be allowed to marry. That, that was the core question, but it wasn't the only uh, issue, legal issue. Now, and I, I remember saying, you know, if we don't publish, say, this is exactly what the legislation is going to look like, then the people who are opposed to it, the Tony Abbotts, the Cory Bernardis, all those sorts of people are going to say, what, you know, what are they, you know, what are, what are they really hiding? Uh, now, ultimately, it wasn't that exposure draft that was passed. It was a bill that 
Senator Dean Smith introduced, but we gave him the exposure draft and he drew heavily upon it, certainly all the technical aspects. And after the, 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 the main proposition was adopted by the Senate, then I moved all the technical amendments that incorporated and built into his um, um, bill, the exposure draft, um, technical stuff. But my point is, there is no virtue in opening a flank to yourself to allow the people who are campaigning for no to say, what are they hiding? Yeah, but I guess I sort of wonder, like, okay, say we accept your your point, um, you, you publish the exposure draft, and, um, you know, there's therefore nothing, there's nothing to be seen here anymore, you know, everything is is out in the open. I mean, I mean, given the, the way the proponents of no have sort of been prosecuting their case, I'm not actually, I don't really see how that will really make any material difference. They seem to sort of shift the goalposts with every new piece of information that comes forward. So apart from a sort of, I suppose, like covering off all bases, I mean, I don't really see how it will actually help really shift the dial on the debate. Well, there is an old-fashioned um, notion which usually gets a pretty favourable reception in political discussion called transparency. Now, we're not talking about a national security document or a, do- or a document uh, for which there are other reasons, other policy reasons why it ought to be kept confidential, we're talking about the draft of a document that's about to be put to the parliament itself. And one of the reasons this seems to be going down is because um, people, uh, the no uh, campaign is um, pointing out to the undecideds in particular, well, you don't know what's in it. I think given that this is not of its nature a confidential document, it's a document that at some stage of the process is going to be the the bill itself. Um, the only reason for keeping it confidential, uh, in my view, is the political tactical reason that if you publish it now, as kind of as you just said, Maria, um, the no case might uh, make merry with it. Well, to which my response is, I think you know, and I've run campaigns. You know, I you know I'm not unfamiliar with the way uh, voters think. I think there is more peril for the yes case in exposing itself to the what are we hiding argument than there is uh, for the yes case uh, in publishing the document and letting the no case sort of pick at it. Because if they do, as they would, of course, as they legitimately would, um, the Prime Minister could reply, well, okay, this is a matter for the parliament to discuss and we're not saying, particularly where... um, the government doesn't have a majority in the Senate. We're not saying that there won't be the capacity for parliamentary, you know, putting in this on the on the, the parliamentary anvil and 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 um, and and beating out of it um, bits that 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 um, are um, should be reviewed. I mean, in a sense, that goes to the crux of the argument anyway, doesn't it? Which is that uh, this is a body that would be subordinate to the parliament. So. To that extent, I suppose there's 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 um, 
some logic in what you're saying, uh, even tactically, because yeah. it allows the government to, uh, or the yes case, the proponents to say, well, look, this is a body that would be entirely created by the parliament, would yeah. be entirely answerable to the parliament. That said, as Maria says, that the no case has been unscrupulous here in, in so many ways. I mean, you talk about the, uh, you know, what you call a sanctimonious tone that, that yes advocates have taken, but no, the no case has been absolutely outrageous. They've talked well, about people stealing your land. They've talked about a veto power that it doesn't have. Um, We've seen the leader of the opposition talking about Canberra ac academics and elite, the, the Canberra voice, which is just wrong. Um, there's the, there's the claim that it's racist, uh, that it would establish apartheid in Australia. This is, social media is coursing with this kind of bile, and um, and there's no doubt that were it this uh, exposure draft, which, as you say, would be subject to all this subsequent parliamentary process if the if the referendum gets up. Uh, would uh, would be subject to considerable change, and it would probably it be, be vastly misrepresented in what is a pretty disreputable sort of well, public I, I look, debate. Mark, I, I take all that on board, and I, I point out that I mean, there's no sort of generic no case. There are lots of as with the yes case too. There are lots of um, points on the spectrum between but, but, but the, the ratbag arguments yeah. from both the yes and the no case. The yes people saying if you vote against this, you're a racist, which is a disgrace. Yeah, but thing I haven't say. seen anyone saying. I, I constantly hear no people saying that yes, people are saying that, but I don't see it anywhere on social media. I've not seen anyone I've seen actually it on saying social media. I've seen it on social well, media. Well, it, it's and, and, it's, and, and, it's vastly outnumbered by the no people who are advocating this argument that it's that it's racist inherently. Well, do you think Peter Dutton is advocating that when he said re-racializing the constitution? Um, what well, I is, think he was feeding that. I think that was a dog whistle. What he was, but uh, well, you may think that, um, but uh, I think what he said, calling attention to the fact that this introduces a racial distinction into an element of the constitution was a point that obviously ought to be made in the argument from the no cases point of view. Well, what it actually does is it recognises there were people here before uh, before yeah. white settlement, uh, and that they were disenfranchised, they were they were dispossessed, they were and 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 there has been an inter a whole series of intergenerational sequelae from that, and we know about. And this is about well, if that's what all it did, you'd be right. But I mean, I think we need to unpick that, Mark. Um, we need to distinguish between constitutional recognition, an idea which, by the way, had its genesis with John Howard mm -hmm. in the 1990s, and the voice as the most appropriate way to effectuate that objective. Now, in my own view, is that if the proposition merely were, should Indigenous people be recognised in the Constitution, uh, that has overwhelming support of the Australian people. You're but, doesn't, about, but doesn't that re-racialise, if you uh, use that language? Um, it, it, well, let me come to that. Um, but I think that a proposition like that would have 1967 levels of support in the community. Um, but that issue and the voice have been merged. And I think the no people like, you know, the, what uh, let's call them the respectable no people, people like Senator Price and Warren Mundine and, and the mainstream no people, I think they're perfectly entitled to make the point whether you, um, even if you agree with Indigenous recognition, um, this is not the way to go about it. All right. Well, you talked about it having greater transparency. What Can I ask you what your position is on it? 
Because, I mean, giving advice, seven ways to rescue the campaign, the, 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 it sets up the idea that you would like to see it rescued. But would you? Well, I would like to see more transparency. I mean, I haven't, you... I haven't publicly declared my own position because right. I'm still watching the debate. I mean, the, the, the column you referred to was a criticism of both the political tactics and more specifically the tone of the Yes campaign. It wasn't a, a, a critique of the proposal itself. Yeah. But, but for me- But the, it did read like but, there but, was but, a but, whole but, lot of reasons not to vote for it. But for me, uh, well, my point was all the reasons not to vote for it are being fed by the Yes people with yeah. their tone-deaf campaign. Um, for me, the big issue is transparency, I have to say. Yeah. Okay. Let's take a break there and come back in a moment. Talk about some other matters. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this Allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. When the wind veered, the smoke was driven backwards, revealing a most amazing scene. Standing columns of fire. To Be Continued is a new podcast that explores the rich world of lost literary fiction from Australia's past. It helps you to understand the way in which knowledge is kind of not something that's out there waiting to be discovered, but it's something that you create. To Be Continued is brought to you by the Australian National University and is available now on your favourite podcast app. Welcome back. Now, we're talking with George Brandis and Maria Teflaga on Democracy Sausage. As you know, um, it's not a radio program, so I guess you're, you're pretty familiar with what you've logged into. Um, uh, George Brandis... Uh, the Prime Minister's in Europe at the moment. He's been in Germany, in Berlin. He's going to Vilnius for uh, in Lithuania for this uh, special NATO conference. Obviously, Ukraine is the the, the, the dominant issue there. Um, you've written about uh, Ukraine and uh, made some, I think, very persuasive points about just the sort of diplomatic disaster and strategic disaster that it has been for for Russia in the sense that it has united Europe and in the sense that it's been militarily much, much harder and, of course, in the end has sort of been rolling backwards as much as forwards in, in recent times. How do you think it's going now? I mean, and, and what do you think will come out of this, uh, this, this, you know, expansion of NATO or the sort of almost kind of the rejuvenation of NATO? It's brought some criticism from Paul Keating, of course. Um, well, Paul Keating sounds increasingly mad, frankly, <laughs> given the, the, some, of the some of the language he used. Uh, He's not a fan reported. of Jens Stoltenberg, is he? The oh, director no, general no, called him a what was it? Supreme fool. Yeah, well, for uh, expanding into or for ex sort of uh, seeking to ex extend its influence yeah. into Asia. Um, uh, the um, I mean, this is kind of King Lear-like madness that we're hearing from Paul Keating these days. Um, now, obviously, the thing that it will be at the front of everybody's mind in Vilnius will be Ukraine. But there are a lot of you know there are a lot of issues that hang off that too, and um, this is something not to be lost sight of. Uh, another is Sweden's membership of NATO. Mm. Uh, now Sweden wouldn't have reversed its policy uh, and sought to become a member of NATO 
but for the Russian invasion of Ukraine. But the fact that Sweden's membership of NATO is being objected to by Turkey is very interesting, and that throws into particular relief the important and increasingly almost anomalous role of Turkey within NATO, because, I mean, NATO, on the one hand, is seeking uh, solidarity against um, uh, Russia in its invasion of Ukraine. On the other hand, Recep Tayyip Erdogan is promoting himself as a uh, a potential uh, um, interlocutor interlocutor between Putin and Zelensky and supplying arms to both sides Mm. or comfort to both sides. So the the reason I go to that example is to, to make the point that it's not just about do we all stand together against Ukraine, which is sort of the Meta narrative here against Russia. I'm sorry, Uh, that's is the meta narrative here, but there is a lot of important political uh, implications within the dynamics of NATO itself that are engaged, and then of course there is the question of to what extent um, nations in our hemisphere um, are are involved. Now, I think Mr. Albanese absolutely made the right decision to go to Vilnius. I think it was a bad mistake for him initially to hesitate. This is a no-brainer that um, a, a nation like Australia, a G20 nation, a Five Eyes member, a, a, a forward-leaning liberal democracy, should stand in absolute solidarity with NATO uh, in defending uh, Ukraine, uh, in its support for Ukraine against this violent, outrageous breach of international law. Um, but... Once again, the the relationship between NATO and the liberal democracies of the Eastern Hemisphere, uh, of the Indo-Pacific, is another um, broader issue that this illuminates. Yeah. And I I guess it was some of that to which uh, Keating was referring as well, which he's quite inflamed about. But Maria, in, in a lot of ways... I mean, yes, we see all these manifestations, uh, NATO sort of rejuvenated, strengthened, enlarged, uh, with some very significant implications associated with that. Um, and we see the mismatch between Turkey and, and and most of the other members in some of those values questions. It's problem with Sweden, for example, and the reason it's been holding up Sweden's application is mostly over um, uh, actions of uh, sort of uh, extreme anti-Islam sentiment being expressed in Sweden, people burning the Quran and disrespecting it and so forth. But, you know, uh, that that goes to a sort of a values question as well, doesn't it, about the extent to which governments are responsible for the actions of citizens and whether in, whether in a liberal democracy governments should be clamping down on free speech or right to protest or whatever. So there's there's so many issues involved here. But it does look like now um, a deal has been done. The Americans have made it very clear to, to Erdogan that uh, they want to see Sweden's application progressed. Uh, it's, all, it's all pretty messy and it's kind of big strategic policy decisions being made in a sense on the run as a result of this war. Well, I guess that's what happens when you've got a revisionist conflict that that is happening. Um, yeah, I mean, I mean, I can't pretend to have the expertise of George here on sort of power politics um, within NATO, though it, it has been interesting to watch Turkey, I guess, sort of 
flex its muscles mm. on this issue. And, and you know, I think it's done that actually quite successfully. Mm. Um, well, it may in, end up with some F-16s as a result of yeah. it, I think. Yeah. Precisely. And, and, I mean, and, you know, and Turkey has always actually been quite successful at playing off uh, various powers within the region. I think there the region. Turkish missiles weren't there back in, the, uh, back in the Cuban Missile Crisis that ended up being removed, I think. Uh, that, that was that. That was the the, the deal that Bobby Kennedy did. Yeah, uh, yeah. Um, it was uh, sort of subsequent off, off to balance it. sheet, as it were. <laughs> it was. It was, was off not, balance sheet yeah. uh, that was not owned up to at the time, and happened sort of discreetly six months later. But that was how the crisis was diffused. Yeah, and it does go to that sort of role you were you're both talking about about Turkey's um, sort of geographic position as well. You know, sitting there between Europe and Asia, and uh, mm. um, and between East and West as well, to an extent, in a kind of a geopolitical sense. Um, yeah, really uh, a kind of a fascinating thing. But uh, um, the NATO hasn't exactly covered itself in glory here, or at least the West in terms of its positioning on NATO hasn't because, you know, we saw George Bush in 2008 talking about Ukraine being made a member. And there was a whole lot of sound strategic reasons, and Paul Keating would certainly agree with this part, of why Ukraine shouldn't be a member or wasn't allowed to be a member and why that was never progressed beyond that and why subsequent signalling was that uh, Ukraine wouldn't be a member simply because it you know, was in this old sphere of influence thing. It was actually shared a border with, with Russia, um, part of the old Soviet Union. It was thought to be an unnecessary provocation and so forth. In the end, Putin decided that there was enough of this um, as a possibility to use it, George, as a justification for, uh, for the invasion and the net result is it could come about anyway because that's now a live issue in Vilnius as well. Well, it all depends how far back in history you want to wind back. I mean, in the late 1980s, after the first President Bush was elected in 1988, but before the Soviet Union fell and they were mm. dealing with Gorbachev, yeah, um, there were conversations, particularly with James Baker, the Secretary of State, uh, and Gorbachev and Shevardnadze, his um, the foreign minister, and in those conversations there was um, the American, I, I don't know if it's right to characterise it as a reassurance, but a, certainly an observation that there was no intention or expectation that NATO would extend uh, to Ukraine. And now this is on either side of the collapse of the Soviet Union mm. while, the thing yeah. is dis while the thing is dismembering. And the, the conversation that I'm referring to must have been during the process of the old Soviet Union dismembering, being dismembered. But, I mean, go back a century or more, uh, there was a separate Ukrainian delegation at the peace talks uh, with Germany, uh, which produced the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk, so uh, separate from Russia. So mm. this issue of Ukraine's distinctness from Moscow and the nature of its engagement with the West um, is a very, I mean, it goes it's got yeah. a long history. Ukraine, you know, I mean, like the Ukrainian sort of historical advocates would sort of say that they were a big loser, actually one of the biggest losers out of the Treaty of Versailles, for example, because, you know, its territory was contested by by Poland, which, you know, um, so Lviv was Lvov until the Second mm, World War, for right. example. Um, you know, the Soviets uh, claimed certain parts of of what is now uh, Ukraine and, um, and, you know, parts of it used to be in the Austro-Hungarian Empire 
itself. So that is actually a very old Tsarist narrative that Ukraine is is a part of um, Russia and that this whole idea of little Russia is actually like a historical process that the Russian Empire tried to do in terms of sort of trying to extinguish that, that sort of national identity within Ukraine. And that's why you sort of see that very deeply political debate about the Ukrainian language and the use of Ukraine as a language as opposed to Russian, um, you know, and how it divides the, the the East and the West. So, mm. There's a really interesting piece that Dennis Glover has written in the um, most recent Australian Foreign Affairs wherein he likens uh, the situation, very much a supporter of, uh, of the current muscling up by the West and treating this threat seriously, uh, Dennis Glover is, uh, but he he makes a very persuasive uh, sort of comparison with the um, failure of democracies to intervene and to supply arms or to supply any sort of support really at all uh, to the Spanish Republicans in 1938 and how that emboldened Hitler and, uh, you know, things that tumbled from there and says, you know, that's the history uh, that uh, that we need to be comparing here. We need to be thinking about, and he says, you know, to be fair, that is what democracies now are doing. They are recognising that to allow Russia to get away with what it's doing in Ukraine, which they, let's be honest, had done in 2014 in relation to the Crimea, to allow it to go further and do this would just be unconscionable. Uh, and um, and that line needs to be drawn in the sand. I haven't read Dennis Glover's article, but I... I'm a bit reluctant to draw comparisons between what's happening in Ukraine now and the Spanish Civil War. I mean, for a start, what's happening in Ukraine now isn't a civil war. It's an invasion. And and secondly, um, if you go back to the Spanish Civil War, I mean, uh, you know, the 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 received view for for for, for decades was that uh, the Francoists were the bad guys and 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 the. Uh, uh, revolutionaries supported by the international brigades were the good guys. There's been a lot of revisionist history. Well, there might have uh, been. They were kind of both bad there, guys. There might have been, but there was actually a, a, a committee established in Europe which which agreed that there would be no support given to either side, but the Germans and the Italians continued yeah, to supply very sophisticated the arms and yeah to yeah. the Francoists and actually tried out their new arms. We know with you know the the the, the bombing of civilian populations, the terror bombing as it was called, yeah. of civilian popula- populations like Guernica. Yeah. Uh, all of these things were tried by using German and Italian arms and support, while the French and the English and the Americans maintained this sort of strict hands-off approach. I, and I, everyone knew it was going on, but I didn't do anything tr- about it. Uh, look, from uh, from my historical memory, I think that's true, but. Uh, I think there were other, even clearer signals of the weakness of Maybe. the West at the time. In particular, the failure to stand up for the Treaty of Locarno and the acquiescence in the Italian invasion of Abyssinia yes. in the 1930s were yeah. even clearer signals of the no, weakness. I agree, of the West. but there's a very there's only a matter of months between the fall of the the Republicans in in Spain and the move on Czechoslovakia. Uh, by by uh, by Hitler, uh, and uh, we know relatively short period after that uh, we were in a, uh, a global war situation. So yes, there are always going to be differences. That's always the nature of historical comparisons or lessons. But I think it's an interesting one. It's not the same one uh, that some people have been arguing about. Sort of the more general idea of you know think about the 1930s when talking about China or whatever. But it does have implications for. What lessons uh, Xi Jinping, for example, would take were the West 
not to uh, take a very strong line in Ukraine. What lesson would uh, Xi Jinping take from that in relation to Taiwan? That's, you know, one of the uh, arguments. That- sure, but uh, I mean, I, I think most people were surprised, frankly, at how strong the line the West took was. I mean, there was a lot of talk yeah. in advance of the invasion that, you know, one of its uh, strategic or geopolitical objective was, was to break the West mm. and to divide the West. And, you know, there were some, Macron being uh, one, who were uh, much uh, more reluctant to take a, a strong line than others. And although his name is now um, uh, uh, going through a period of unpopularity, there's no question whatsoever that the Western leader who took the strongest and most forward-leaning view was Boris Johnson. Mm. Yeah, no, it's absolutely true. Yeah, but I, I don't think we can discount the fact that the the debacle that was that invasion is actually one of the reasons why the West sort of rallied. I think if if that invasion had been more successful, I'm not sure we would have necessarily have seen no, the same. No, I think you're wrong about that, Maria. I mean, when you say the West, perhaps some elements of the West, but no doubt the British and also others with, with equities here like the Balts, the Baltic states mm. uh, and, and the Scandinavians who felt you know, because of their land border threatened. I mean, they were out and strong before it was, uh, it was apparent that the invasion was uh, was faltering because of bad Russian logistics and tactics. But it is true to say, and we'll, we'll have to move on to another subject just in, in before we go, but it is true to say that it's easy to forget how slow in some ways and how iterative that support has become. Uh, it's got stronger over time and uh, more and more arms have come and greater resolve has come and greater unity has come. True. But there's been a, there was a lot of equivocation and what we say in footy is short steps toward the ball rather than really rushing into it. Well, I mean, and, and my point is that on the part of some of the West, yes, yeah. most obviously France. the Americans. Yeah, well, yeah. France yeah. too. But, yeah. but most obviously, I mean – it was the Americans who famously offered to evacuate exactly. Zelensky and his family, mm. to which he, you know, wrote his name into every, mm. uh, you know, it's a book of quotations for yeah. the, <laughs> the end of time with his response: "I don't, I need ammunition, uh, not a ride." Yeah, but you wouldn't offer to evacuate Zelensky and his family unless you were prepared to give up on it, mm. on it at the at the start, which Biden evidently was, and it was Zelensky's. Political Precisely. and personal courage, because he knew they were uh, the Wagner yeah, they, they assassins were, pre- were hunting him in Kiev as he and as they he were pre- positioned there. Yeah, yeah. You know, that's absolutely uh, that, right. That was the turning point in saying, no, no, we are not going. This is not uh, going to be uh, like Afghanistan. We are going to stand and fight. Yeah, and it really did set the tone, and it's a, yeah. a tone that has been consistently set since. And even, and I'm sure this will be the case in Vilnius if he's there. I assume he's going to be. He um, uh, yeah, he arrives in his in his T-shirt and his fatigues. And the message, the visual message, no matter how salubrious, how prestigious, how formal the gathering is of world leaders, Zelensky is always wearing, you know, that that green T-shirt. And I think it's a really impressive point he's making here. I am a leader at war yeah. and don't ever forget it. I'm not going to roll up, roll up in a suit and sort of be in some other frame. And I know you want to get onto other topics, but can I just make this point about Zelensky? I'm sorry to say I've never met, but he's so clever. Pe- people... Thought heard that this guy had, was a comedian who got elected uh, as president of Ukraine some years ago, and they were sort of ha ha ha. And then he was very unpopular until uh, the invasion happened, mm. and then obviously things changed uh, massively. But the thing you've got to remember about Zelensky is he wasn't just a comedian; 
He was actually an entrepreneur. He mm. owned and ran the production company which produced that um, that TV comedy, Servant of the People, in which he was also the star. He's a. I, I was talking to um, Vasil Moroshnichenko, mm. the who knows him very well, the Ukraine ambassador to Australia the other day about this. Zelensky is a really, really smart guy. And he absolutely knows, partly from his background in the entertainment industry, and in this way he resembles perhaps Ronald Reagan, he knows how to kind of strike exactly the right posture uh, in those sort of informal ways, like, as you say, Mark, like the, the, the military attire. And I'll give you another example. I was in the House of Commons um, in the gallery when only a few weeks after the invasion, when he addressed the House of Commons by video link from from Kiev, and it was you know, still the expectation was that the Russians were going to prevail. Mm. And in his speech, his peroration, he said things like, we're going to fight the Russians um, in uh, the pasture lands of Ukraine uh, and we're going to fight them. And... He could have quoted Churchill, right? He could have said, we'll fight them on the beaches, we'll fight them on the landing grounds, mm. we'll fight them on the fields and the hills. But he didn't quote Churchill. What he did was he used words that resembled mm. what Churchill had said. And you know what? All these members of the House of Commons turned to each other and said, gosh, he sounds just like Churchill. Yeah. Now, that's so clever and that was performative. And that's and I mean he obviously is uh, when it comes to the performative yeah, arts. Yeah, he, he does that. He does that. Like when he sp- speaks in Poland, he uses Polish imagery. When he mm. spoke in yeah. Australia, he uses Australian imagery. He's very yeah. good. Like no, that. He, yeah, he, he is very impressive. And what's going on there? We should never forget is the un- unlawful, immoral, disgusting, atrocious uh, uh, annihilation of civilians. And it is um, you know we should we should never have a discussion about Ukraine and and brush over the fact that uh, a state has rolled into another state illegally and has been bombing civilian targets as part of its, you know, very much part of its core strategy. And it is flagrantly disgusting in every possible way you can imagine. Now, I want to just go on very quickly because we've sort of eaten up most of our time, but I want to just go on to another subject, which is uh, the Liberal Party. You you, mm. you, you wrote about this uh, very... Um, Interestingly, recently, George, um, uh, and there'd been a fair bit of commentary about you know the challenge that's faced by the Liberal Party, the number of intermetropolitan seats it has, for example. Your point was, and I'll just get you to expand on this. Your point was, it's not just demographics; it's geography. I wonder if you could just speak to that. Well, um, by that, what I'm the point I was making is that everybody says, well, you know, the Liberal Party is losing the demographic wars because young people don't vote for it. Well, that's true, mm. but twas ever thus. Um, it's just there's more of them. <laughs> but quite. But but I think geography, where the votes are, um, is a very important and sometimes underappreciated um, part of the issue. Now, what is to me as a lifelong liberal, I've been a member of the Liberal Party for 50 years, what um, is shocking to me is how few seats the Liberal Party has in the capital cities. Mm. And let me illustrate the point by um, giving you a horrifying, from a Liberal Party point of view, a horrifying statistic. The Liberal Party has more federal seats in regional Queensland, that is in all of Queensland, 
without exception, with the exception of Brisbane, than it has in all of the eight state and territory capitals put together. Mm. And it's, I mean, and so much of the discussion has been about the loss of the inner city seats, the Keongs and the Wentworths and so on, uh, which is a big problem. I'm not for a moment saying it's not, but just as big a problem as was illustrated and dramatised by the Aston by-election is the disconnect from suburban Australia, not, you know, the, 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 the classic marginals that, that swing either way on the, uh, on, in the outer suburbs of the cities, the, the famous mortgage belt, and not the inner city seats that were traditionally prosperous but are having a deep demographic change, but that middle belt of seats, which were usually pretty re- – like Aston. Like Aston, yeah. Which were usually pretty reliable conservative voting seats, and not just in Melbourne, but in virtually every capital city, they've gone to the Labor Party, or in some cases, in the case of three seats in Brisbane itself um, – to the greens. To the greens. Mm. I mean, I, th- I mean, this is a, a, a long-term shift in 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 the Liberal Party. I mean, that process has been underway for for maybe three decades, right? You know, I think when John Howard was Prime Minister, or just after he lost, there were more regional seats in Liberal hands than in the National Party's hands, for example. That's been the case for a long time. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and and I think you've put the point really starkly, right, about the sort of concentration of, I guess, you know, the people who are actually in the party room coming from regional Queensland in effect, like they're the dominant group reinforced by the National Party, which is also a strongly Queensland-based party. So I guess my, my question to you is a long time veteran of, um, you know, internal Liberal Party politics as a prominent member of the moderate faction, what hope is there for the moderates to sort of, I guess, robustly engage in a debate that might entice those voters from the sort of, you know, reliable Astons of the world and you, your seats in, in, in Kuyong and your mortgage belts if, if, if there isn't really much scope for a vibrant discussion internally to test ideas? I think there's, a, there's scope for a vibrant discussion internally. Um, I think Dutton's been very good um, at including, you know, f- following the example of John Howard, um, including um, more conservative and more moderate voices uh, but the moderate voices have tended to come from the city electorates and they just aren't- Or from the as, Senate. Uh, or from the Senate, and uh, quite right. And there just aren't as many of them. Now, but let me give you two examples. So in the last couple of weeks, there have been um, st- state conferences of the Liberal Party or the LNP in both New South Wales and Queensland. Um, at the New South Wales State Conference, um, uh, they elected as their- uh, new state president, Jason Falinski, um, a very prominent moderate who lost his seat, McKellar, I think it was, to it appeal was, yeah. um, at the last election. And the, the moderate faction of the New South Wales Liberal Party is absolutely in control. Um, it's not unchallenged, of course, but it's, it certainly uh, is the dominant faction. As, as I said in another of my Sydney Morning Herald columns after the New South Wales election, it was due to the influence of people like Matt Keane uh, that um, they, the New South Wales Liberals didn't, at the state election, suffer the sort of teal experience and lose their heartland seats to the teals on the northern beaches. 
That that yeah, I agree. That proves Maria's point, though, doesn't it? Really, that that if you can get that message out, and Matt Keane did that very very well, stridently, yeah, uh, and he pushed back publicly. We haven't seen that kind of pushback. We, I mean, Simon well, Birmingham. I, but it's happen- can, can, can it's I just make, can I just quickly yeah, yeah. make this point? Birmingham uh, made some very strident comments from the airport the morning after the election where he talked about climate change and where the, the, where the uh, coalition had been on that over a long period of time and what voters had said and how there needed to be a recalibration of the position. Mm. Dutton had the best cover possible then in the in the lee of that election as the new leader to effectively declare the climate wars over to 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 accept that the voters wanted a far, you know had just fairly decisively when you consider the labor greens and teal vote together had fairly decisively voted for uh, more rapid addressing of this question he could have done that then and he would have removed a very significant reason for re-electing the Teals had he adjusted the Liberal Party position on it. He chose not to. Birmingham's gone silent. There is no federal sense of a Matt Keane. Um, and well, look, hard... I, uh, look I, I'm, I, I'm not going to be drawn on that. I do have some views about it. Um, but we'll have can, to wait for the call. I, yeah, indeed. <laughs> but can I just point out that um, when the leading moderate is in the Senate, as Senator Birmingham um, is the leading moderate now, obviously, in yeah. the Federal pa- Parliamentary Liberal Party, um, they get a lot less traction because of the way Parliament works than when they're in the House of Representatives. You know, um, think about the days when Christopher Pine, for example, was yeah, in the House of Representatives. Yeah, but I think, I, I, think, I, think I, I think in terms of just the way power works in Canberra, you're always in a weaker position as a senior figure when you're in the Senate than in the House of Representatives. But he is government leader. He is opposition leader yeah, in the no, Senate. No, that's yeah. true. That's true of course, indeed. Um, now, um, I was talking about the the, uh, the New South Wales Liberal Party. Last weekend, there was the state conference of the LNP and they had along with the state conference uh, a pre-selection for the Senate. Um, they re-endorsed at number one on the Senate ticket with a vote of something like 99%, Senator Paul Scar, a good friend of mine who was a leading moderate, um, and they dumped that lunatic, um, what's his name? Uh, um, Jared Rennick. Jared Rennick. Thank, thank you. I couldn't <laughs> even remember his name. But uh, from, from, the, from the Senate ticket uh, and uh, in his place put somebody who wasn't a lunatic. So, you know, the last – so, yeah, I mean no, – He's not been a, an ornament. So here's some field evidence from the last couple of weeks, right? Yeah, sure, but uh, – In New South Wales and in Queensland, uh, it, it, it was a good outing for the but moderates. But we, we, we started off talking well, – earlier talking about the, the message people take in, say, the voice debate, right? The message people take about the coalition, particularly because oppositions don't get the, the, the spread and coverage and penetration that, that governments do, as you've just noted, and, and even less so in the Senate and so forth. But the message that voters are getting about the coalition at the moment is that it has not changed its position on climate, it has not changed its position on women, which is another sort of question um, – there has been some progress on the anti-corruption question. That's true. There was a degree of bipartisanship there in the end. Um, and I, I just think, yes, it's all very well for moderates to say, well, like, you know, John Howard Dutton is putting moderates into positions. He understands the notion of a broad church. But he's not, hopefully, one imagines from the moderates' point of view, buying their silence in that process. No, I don't think so. I think Peter is... Um well, where's the evidence that the moderates uh, 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 are speaking well, out? Well, remember, when you lose an election, and my own view is that the uh, the election the Liberal Party lost last year was 
arguably its worst ever federal loss. I think I, the not, empirics not, are there. Yeah, yeah. No, 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 yeah. We're unanimous on that. Yeah. Not, not, not by volume of seats. It wasn't a landslide to the Labor Party by any means, but because of the number of seats they lost to the Teals. Mm, and where which, they lost Which, by them, the yeah. way, wouldn't have been lost by Malcolm Turnbull. No, I know. Because Malcolm, you know, was, was uh, particularly on the empowerment of women, it was one of his absolute mm. signature issues and mm. he had a lot of credibility about it. Now- when you go into opposition after a, a, a thumping defeat, the first obligation of the new leader is to hold the party together. Yeah, I understand. And that. and and the, and the people you've got to hold together are the people who are left. Yeah. Now at the moment, the people who are left people after are left are right. last year are from the more conservative side <laughs> yeah, of the party. Yeah. But I mean, I know Peter Dutton has gone out of his way to um, keep the the moderates in the tent, um, and. If there is one political uh, former Liberal Party leader who Dutton copies into or admires and, and, and seeks to emulate in terms of the way he runs things, it's John Howard, and it's exactly what John used to do. Yeah, okay. Final question, and we have to be very brief on this because I'm in trouble for going for so long here. Um, should Scott Morrison now fold his tent? Hold his? Fold his tent, go. I'll fold his tent. Uh, I don't think so. He was elected as the member for Cook um, and uh, he has uh, responded to the Robodet Royal Commission. Uh, now, I'm not calling into question anything it decided, but I think as a general proposition, people who are elected to parliament um, should serve out their term unless circumstances uh, prevail, which makes it uh, inappropriate for them to stay. And I don't think um, the fact that a royal commission has made these findings against him and begun a process which we are yet to see, a whether it involves him personally, and b what uh, it can't be helping. Can't be helping Peter Dutton though, having having him there and having these issues drag on and having, in a sense, you know, his kind of uh, defiance. Mark, you're asking me to say should. Scott well, would it be would it be politically better? I suppose is what I'm asking you uh, for him to go. And, and let's face it, leaders are sort of sui generis in this. They 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 contest the election as prime minister, so it's understandable if they're not prime minister anymore. It's yeah. been a tradition that they they nick off. Uh, I, I don't. Well, that's not always the case. It's, well, it's certainly not the case in Britain, but it is mostly and, the and case it wasn't, here. It hasn't been the case in Australia. I mean, Gough Whitlam had the biggest Labor defeat We're in history in 1975 and he was elected leader of the opposition and had the, wanted to have the second biggest Labor defeat in 1977. Yeah, no, we're Billy going McMahon back away well, I'd say Whitlam was probably the last to do that and after Fraser, that tradition... I don't think it's a tradition. I liked Julia Gillard's point when she finally was confronted by Rudd the second, you know, when he came back at her and she said, all right, we'll have a party ballot, but whoever loses has to leave the parliament. I thought that was a pretty reasonable proposition. Uh, 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 I mean, people like us who are very close to politics and, and, and find it uh, endlessly fascinating um, love the talk about by-elections. I think, you know, the, the average gonna... <laughs> punter in Cook would think that having a, a by-election in Cook would be a pain in the neck. Oh, well, that's almost certainly true. Uh, George Brandis, thanks for coming in and talking to us on Democracy Sausage, Pleasure, being a Mark. good sport about it all, and um, really appreciate it. It's been a really fascinating discussion. I think we've covered quite a lot, Maria. We sure have. Thank you very much. Yeah, it's been really good fun. And um, that's it for this week. If you want to give us any feedback, uh, our email address is democracysausage at anu.edu.au. Until next week, bye for now. 